In Kent, Washington, sitting on the Puget Sound, between Seattle and Tacoma, Amazon runs a fulfillment center, a large warehouse employing over 2,600 workers. It was built less than seven years ago, and it has already been the subject of a state OSHA enforcement activity. When OSHA issued willful violations alleging ergonomics-related violations under the state general duty clause, Amazon contested the citation. The case went up to the federal district court on uh, the question of whether or not Amazon should have to abate the alleged violations while at the same time contesting their validity. I'm Manish Rath, and this is the topic of today's OSHA 3030. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at a law firm Keller and Heckman, and for over a quarter of a century, I've been engaged in the practice in the field of occupational safety and health law, representing management. And I'm grateful because today I'm joined by my good friend and my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thanks for having me, Manish. Pleasure as always. It's my pleasure too. And as you know, here at Keller & Heckman, Taylor, we've been doing the OSHA 3030 for uh, over a decade, and we have over 100 episodes uh, posted on our website, khlaw.com. Uh, covering a large number of OSHA law-related topics. This is something we've done every single month without skipping uh, for 10 years and 100, over 100 episodes. Uh, so, in, And we try and cover a developmental issue in OSHA law in about 30 minutes every 30 days. Uh, so for those of you listening in today, if, you haven't, uh, if you've missed a few episodes, go through our website and check out some of those lost episodes. And, and uh, I think some of them are still as relevant today as they were when they were recorded. So Taylor, we got a great subject today, the Amazon case that went up to federal district court on the question of, of whether or not an employer has to abate while contesting citation. That's right, Manish. So first we'll go through the factual background of the case, which is Amazon versus Sachs. Uh, next, we'll discuss the proposed means of abatement uh, that the Washington Department of Labor and Industries listed in the citation against Amazon. Uh, then we'll outline Washington State's process for contesting a citation uh, we will go through the district court's decision, and, and then, as always, we'll wrap up with what employers should do, uh, some practical takeaway items uh, for you to bring back to your workplace. That's right, Taylor, and, and many uh, of our recurring participants in the OSHA 3030 know that we wrap up for the live audience uh, with a off-the-record. We're not going to do that today. We're pre-recording on Friday, April 14th for the April 19th program, so we're going to skip the, the off-the-record portion for this month. By all means, for those of you listening who were looking forward to it, if you have questions, reach out to us, Taylor or me, by by email or by phone. If you have a quick question that we can answer off the top of our head, I think everyone who knows you and me, Taylor, knows that we love the subject matter of OSHA law, love chatting about it, and are happy to answer any, any questions uh, that might come up for members of the OSHA 3030 community. So, Taylor, why don't we get into the Amazon versus Sachs case? This is a I think this is an important uh, decision that's now in progress as we speak. Yeah. Uh, so we started in Kent, Washington, uh, where Amazon operates a fulfillment center uh, with approximately uh, 2,600 workers. 
yeah, at some point season, that's just the, the non-seasonal right. size of the workforce. At some point it exceeds that by a, a significant number. Other reports say that the non-seasonal number can be as high as 3000 to just give you a sense of this. Uh, we're talking about over a million square feet of warehousing and on any given shift, 800, as many as 800 workers are coming in and out per shift, perhaps more. Uh, so this is a, a fully automated warehouse. Uh, Amazon employs industrial equipment, robotic devices, computer software, all to assist in the rapid fulfillment uh, uh, that takes place at this fulfillment center. That's right. And then, so what sort of starts this chain here is that an employee uh, submits a complaint uh, to Washington's Department of Labor and Industries, which we'll refer to as LNI. And Taylor, as you know, we've been watching this closely and advising our clients on this, but Amazon has been the subject of complaints like this uh, at facilities throughout the country. This right. argument that that the way they're conducting their uh, fulfilling their mission is uh, one that can be improved ergonomically. And in particular, there seems to be a targeting of this argument that line speed is inversely related to uh, musculoskeletal uh, disorder management. And so in other, in plain that, that the faster workers work, the more likely they are to incur musculoskeletal disorders. A, a debatable proposition, certainly I don't think it's a simple linear relationship, but that has been the subject of these complaints uh, against Amazon at several facilities throughout the nation, and this is just just one of them. So, so with that said, Washington State OSHA receives a complaint. They conduct an inspection. They go through the facility, and that inspection results in multiple safety violation allegations by Washington OSHA. Uh, we'll refer to it as Washington OSHA or WISH, and they they allege all of them to be uh, willful and serious in in Washington State. They categorize that as willful serious violations, 11 out of the 12 to be specific were classified as willful serious violations, all of which were under the general duty clause. That's right, Manish. And, and as you pointed out, um, you know, all related to these sort of ergonomic risk factors. Um, but just to note that Washington does not have an ergonomic standard. So exactly like you said, these, these were brought under the state's general duty clause. Um, you know, related to things such as, you know, forceful twisting, bending, long reaches, all likely to cause a muscular uh, skeletal uh, disorder uh, in the lower back, um, so kind of a long laundry list in the citation itself. And, and again, all willful, serious uh, citations or violations. And then Amazon was required to submit a written plan of abatement um, within 60 days of receiving uh, the citation. And, and in addition, that's right, Taylor, they, the uh, Washington State OSHA also identified specific abatements that they believed should be implemented. Right. Uh, their proposal for abatements included installation of telescoping conveyors with height adjustable uh, work platforms and the use of vacuum lifts like the one depicted here. That's right. Uh, it also included structured job rotation. Um, so maybe staggering shifts um, to, to prevent some of that burden um, with, you know, related to ergonomics and then adjusting the pace of work, which is, as you mentioned, certainly a complaint that we've seen uh, levied against Amazon and in multiple states, you know, this fast pace of work, you know, sort of being a trigger for these, these ergonomic. Uh, you know, oh, well, I think that's right, Taylor. I think that is what Washington OSHA s believes to be the, the uh, real gravamen of the employee complaint. Right. And so they tuck it in there as the fifth item of proposed <laughs> abatement. But that really seems to me, at least, to be what they're really driving at. 
Right. Uh, in addition, the the agency requires or requests a full implementation of uh, Amazon's own written ergonomics program, uh, which includes, at a minimum, uh, the the elements that uh, that Amazon had identified as practices that they'd like to see their employees engage in. But it doesn't uh, doesn't it's non-specific as to the frequency duration or the the tasks, and so so OSHA uh, maintains that these elements identified in the program have to be applied all the time uh, at all circumstances. And then finally, the implementation of work rest cycles, which is a cousin to or or correlated with this idea of line speed and adjusting the time and pace of work. Uh, it's sort of a, a secondary to to pacing right. that that there would be work rest cycles built in. So these are the things that OSHA, Washington State OSHA, has directed as recommended abatements on the face of their issued citation against Amazon. And so Amazon timely appeals the citation. Uh, and Manus, one of the things that we want to discuss here is sort of the procedural difference, uh, you know, in, in states like Washington, you know, versus at the federal level. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of jumped off the page to us is that, you know, Amazon appeals this and, and yet they're sort of, they're, they're called the plaintiff. They're styled as the plaintiff in the filings that we reviewed, you know, related to this case, kind of a, an interesting dynamic. Yeah, Taylor, you know, in the non-state plan uh, concept in the federal OSHA system, the citation is issued and it alleges a violation and it uh, proposes abatement measures and the employer issues a notice of contest. They notify the agency that they contest the, these allegations. Then it's incumbent upon OSHA to refer the matter to the Office of the Solicitor and the Office of the Solicitor files a complaint before uh, the administrative law judge. And then they're the plaintiff and the employer is the defendant as it properly should be so. And the burden rests with the plaintiff, as is properly the case for plaintiffs. Uh, here in Washington State, and you and I have encountered this in other cases we've worked on, right. uh, the, they've kind of flipped the script where the employer has to not notice, issue a notice of contest, but has to file an appeal of the citation. That makes them the appellant, although they're referred to as the plaintiff. And that, that's a very different order of events. And I think that that's an important uh, it may be that by the time they get to a hearing, the burden nevertheless remains with the agency. But then why call the agency the defendants? So that, those are some critical distinctions between the Washington state system and the federal system. And we've seen that, you and I, in Washington state as well as several other states where we've uh, inv been involved in in citation contests. And it's, right. I think it's a troubling inversion of the natural order of American jurisprudence. Yep, completely agree. And so after Amazon appeals the citation, um, they request a stay of the abatement measures uh, that, that we've previously gone through. And then uh, Washington and OSHA refers the appeal uh, and stay request um, to, to another agency, the Board of Industrial Insurance Appeals, or BIIA. So this is the, the method by which the process uh, goes from the point at which Amazon files its appeal. And now it's before the Board of Industrial uh, Insurance Appeals. And the first thing that they review is, is the appeal and contained within that a request to abate, uh, uh, to, to put a stay on the abatement recommendations from Washington OSHA. 
And so there are three uh, requirements um, that you need to have in your request uh, for a stay of abatement. Um, the first is that you need to provide evidence uh, to support the stay request. So again, kind of a you know, like, like you noted, a shifting of the burden here, uh, Amazon now needs to provide evidence um, as opposed to, to Washington OSHA providing evidence to support the citation. Amazon needs to put it on to support the stay request. Right. And uh, the second one, the second requirement isn't so so upsetting. The uh, appellant, or in this case, Amazon, has to certify as to whether or not the workplace is unionized. And I think that that is a uh, sort of a reasonable request to represent to the board whether or not there's a third party with an interest at stake in this case. So that's right. the second requirement. Right. And the third is to certify that employees were informed of the appeal uh, and, and of their right to participate. Um, and as we'll discuss, this is the step that Amazon did not take. They did not timely notify um, employees of the appeal. Um, but but this sort of idea, Manish, this idea of timely posting uh, in general, you know, something that we're constantly dealing with, um, you and I, you know, sort of always reminding our clients to be aware of, of this, you know, notif this notification requirement. Right, right. And so, and all they had to do was certify to the board yeah. that they had taken the step of notifying the employees that there was a citation and that Amazon has appealed it and that the employees have a right to participate in the process. And that's all they had to do is just to make that notification and then to certify to the board that they made that notification. And all of that should be done in the case of Washington State uh, within the 15-day period uh, prior that, that leads into the notice of contest deadline. So, so by the time Amazon had uh, filed its notice of contest, it hadn't met that third criteria, as you say, Taylor. Exactly. And because of that, because of that failure to meet that third criteria, uh, the BIA denied Amazon's request for a stay uh, on May 27th of 2022. It's interesting, Taylor, because the citation comes out less than two months earlier, let's say around March 9th. Right. And Amazon had 15 days and it puts it around March 30th that they had to file their notice of contest. So by, at the earliest, because we don't know what mailing time period was involved. Right. So by at the earliest March 30th, they had to file their notice contest. So we're talking about, you know, eight weeks or less that this omission occurred, that Amazon had not yet notified employees. And on the 27th of May, the board denies the stay, implying or meaning that Amazon now has to implement all of the recommended abatement actions that the compliance officer had indicated on the face of the citation while at the same time contesting the validity of the citation itself. Amazon didn't believe that this was fair or appropriate, and so they, they notified the employees of the citation of their appeal and of the employee's right to participate on June 6th, or about nine, nine, 10 days later, and then reapplied to the board their request to allow a stay of the abatement. And the board now revisits it a second time, the request to stay the uh, recommended abatements. They do. And they again deny uh, the request, um, stating that the late notification um, didn't rectify, uh, you know, the quote unquote deficiency present uh, at the time that the stay request was filed. Um, Which is interesting because, Taylor, you wonder what the deficiency was. I think that the analysis is the wrong analysis. It's not whether or not late notice rectifies it. The analysis is whether or not there was any prejudice during those eight weeks. Right. And in the absence of any prejudice to the employees, and indeed nobody had filed anything else 
the case hadn't progressed. They hadn't missed any opportunity to participate at any filing stage, uh, particularly if the board reopened the deadline to do so, then, then it's hard to argue that there was any prejudice to the employees merely because Amazon notified them eight weeks after perhaps they should have. Right. I completely agree. And also Amazon obviously hadn't implemented any of the abatement measures. And so you would think that after notification, uh, there was an opportunity there for the employees to have a role in any potential abatement that would occur essentially, potentially at least rectifying, you know, the error. So, yeah, that's a good point, Taylor. Yeah. Okay. So Amazon gets a second rejection from the board and proceeds to federal court, uh, the, the federal district court in the state of Washington, and uh, file suit. Now, now they're clearly for the purposes of the federal suit, the plaintiff, they are seeking summary judgment from the federal district court ruling on whether or not this was an appropriate measure by the board, whether it was appropriate for the board to deny a stay of the recommended abatement while Amazon contests the underlying citations. And at sort of the center of this uh, suit filed in federal district court is, is this argument that uh, the BIA's denial of the stay request deprived Amazon of its due process rights. Certainly an, an interesting argument. Right. The due process argument being you're making us correct an alleged violation when we haven't tested before an arbitrator or a tribunal whether there was a violation in fact. We need to first uh, get an opportunity for a fair trial to determine whether or not there was indeed a violation before making us correct any such alleged violation. And that on its face, sounds like a reasonable due process argument. Yeah. So the district court heard both arguments. And unfortunately, I think the, the arguments that Amazon made, I, I certainly wouldn't have, I wouldn't have emphasized the arguments that Amazon made in some of these cases and others I wouldn't have made at all. But the district court evaluated arguments from both sides and issued a ruling. And I, and I think the, the purpose of today's episode is to go through that to better understand from the employer community what they're up against and what arguments might work much more effectively. I, I could see this straight out of the gate, but, but I'd love to understand, better understand the reasoning for the arguments that Amazon did in fact make. Why don't we get into them? Yeah, absolutely. And so the first element in a procedural due process claim um, is this idea of, of a risk of erroneous deprivation. And so with respect to Amazon here, they argue that the risk of erroneous deprivation is high uh, because uh, Washington OSA's procedures, um, which have a short time frame, as Amazon argues, uh, do not provide employers with a reasonable opportunity uh, to you know, sort of present evidence, uh, rebut any evidence that Washington OSHA could present. Um, but the judge here says that, one, that there's a Public Records Act, uh, sort of the, the equivalent um, to a, um, a FOIA uh, at the state level in Washington. And that that would facilitate a discovery process and that a short time frame does not automatically imply improper process. Um, and then there's also an argument that Amazon makes that this requirement that they need to uh, complete a certification of abatement um, at this early juncture sort of improperly compels them to admit to unproven violations. Um, but again, the judge here says that the employer certification of abatement uh, cannot be used to prove a violation. And so Amazon does not win on their arguments related to uh, you know, erroneous deprivation. Yeah, it's unfortunate because it's the wrong answer on the part of the court, but it's largely due to the fact that Amazon emphasized the wrong element. A certification of abatement cannot be used to prove a violation. But what Amazon could have argued was that a certification of abatement 
certainly serves, has evidentiary value as to whether or not there's feasibility towards abatement. And that is a much more compelling argument. And I wish that it had been made so that we would have that, the benefit of a court having the opportunity to evaluate that argument. The other thing I'd say is, although a short time frame does not automatically imply an improper process, one of the things that the federal court uh, said in its ruling, that the it's not to the point that Amazon missed the opportunity to notify employees and then to certify to the board that it notified the employees of the citation, the appeal, and their rights. Right. And that didn't take, unless they're arguing, so it doesn't take a discovery process and it doesn't take an exceptionally long period of time. Um, in fact, in the federal system as well, it's something that needs to be posted immediately and doesn't take more than a few minutes to do. So the argument is not really the strongest argument. I'd like to see much stronger arguments on the private interest side. And unfortunately, I think this was a missed opportunity as well. The private interest argument goes to the idea that there's a weighing and balancing between public interests and private interests when forcing an employer to take abatement measures prior to the adjudication of the underlying merits of the alleged violation. So the private interest argument here to me is very clear. The, the abatement, not only would it be costly, as Amazon does argue, and they argue that it'd be, it would cost tens of millions of dollars to implement before we even know if there's a violation, but I would assert that you could be going theoretically in the wrong direction. That's a much better argument, that you could be going in the wrong direction until you know which of the 12 vi alleged violations hold up and which ones don't. And then you may have to implement yet a new set of abatement measures in order to address the ones that that the board validated. And so in the interest of not going in the wrong direction in, in an intermediary fashion, that I think is a compelling private interest because that's ineradicable. Once an employer engages in abatement activity, it could the wrong abatement activity could result in more injuries and increase in musculoskeletal disorders. And at any rate would have a temporary uh, disruption when afterwards the employer would have to go in a different direction altogether, potentially. So I think that that's a much more compelling argument, this ineradicable wrong direction that could be imposed upon an employer by forcing intermediary abatement measures. That's the private interest. And I think that was a missed opportunity. Uh, then then OSHA had, a, uh, Washington State OSHA had an opportunity to advance the state's interests. That's right. And so they you know, essentially say that they have an interest in promoting workplace safety, um, which which the judge you know, obviously agrees with. And then, um, you know, to sort of combat this argument that Amazon had about an expedited timeline, uh, the judge actually agrees with Washington OSHA here and says that this shortened timeline to review stay requests actually ensures that serious safety hazards are quickly addressed. And so that's how they deal with that in relation to, to private interest or public interest. Sure. And in fairness to Washington OSHA, you could have seen this one coming. The, right. <laughs> the, they had alleged that it was a, a willful serious and that it was leading to, in, in, by implication, to injuries and illnesses. And you you have to act quickly in order to uh, act quickly by imp implementing uh, intermediate uh, abatements in order to to stem the increase in additional injuries and illnesses. That argument you can see a mile away, and they made that argument and apparently did so effectively because the court agreed. Yep. Um, so so those are the arguments that both the parties made as to the question of procedural due process. Uh, I want to point out that there are arguments here as to procedural due process as well as substantive due process, and, and they both need to be addressed in their turn. 
So with respect to procedural due process um, as applied here in this case, um, you know, Amazon argues that it, it essentially it, it would have won, would have prevailed on their request for a stay um, if the board had considered the request on the merits um, as opposed to what they call a technicality, uh, the late notification of, of the notice of contest to their employees. Right. And the federal court chastised Amazon for this argument saying that employee, the employee notification requirement is not a technicality. Um, I think it's, I, I would never have made an argument that the employee notification is a technicality, but indeed Amazon did. And I'd love to know the reasons why uh, that drive that argument. But it's important to keep in mind that Amazon is on one hand asserting that the deprivation of their own due process rights uh, was material in that they didn't get a chance to be heard on the underlying merits of their arguments as to the preliminary abatement or on the question of the alleged violations. But on the other hand, they allege that not notifying a third-party stakeholder who could participate at every step in these proceedings and stopping them from participating by not telling them about the proceedings is not a deprivation of due process rights and rather a mere technicality. And I think that that is at best a very difficult argument to hold in balance with their own arguments about their own due process deprivations. And I don't know how they pulled it off. I'd like to better understand that in order to appreciate the, the reason why that argument was advanced. But I certainly not knowing more would not advise making the argument that keeping a party in the dark, who would otherwise be able to participate in a case is merely a technicality. Even if all they were saying was doing so eight weeks late was the technicality, I wouldn't have done so. I would have said that it was a cured defect without prejudice. Big difference. And I think it's the difference. So the court disagreed with them and said, this is not just a mere technicality. This is keeping a party in the dark and keeping them out of this case. And so, Monish, as you mentioned, there were also substantive due process um, arguments here in this case. Um, and so Amazon, um, so to make a substantive due process claim, uh, Amazon would have to show that the state's actions uh, were clearly arbitrary, unreasonable, and had no substantial relation uh, to public health uh, or safety. So that's sort of the standard here. Uh, Amazon argues that the current state procedures you know, shifts this legal burden, you know, we talked about this at the outset, um, you know, to two employers to essentially have to prove their innocence or abate uh, hazards, as opposed to what we traditionally see at the federal level, where, you know, OSHA has to, has the burden of proof to prove, you know, the citations, you know, in, in, in the first instance. Right. And the court uh, said in his opinion that merely putting the burden of proof on the employer does not per se equates to uh deprivation of due process. I, I would argue that's exactly what it does. And I don't know how the court was able to manage that argument either. Uh, and I think that was an unfair, uh, maybe opinion, specifically with respect to that statement. Uh, the court also held that that Washington OSHA had presented a clear, rational basis for protecting worker safety. And for that reason, Amazon's challenge to the deprivation of substantive due process rights must fail. And I'm not sure I buy that argument either. Uh, if that were so, then no employer would ever have any substantive due process rights because right. by definition, the agency's mandate is protecting worker safety. So there's got to be something more than that. I, and again, I think here it, the issue should have been framed by Amazon 
as uh, being pinned on whether or not eight weeks of failure, which was at the end of eight weeks cured, constitutes a prejudice to the employee community when in fact there were no filings that gave them an opportunity to weigh in that they had missed out on. Or had they missed out on it, you could simply reopen the file and allow them to and thereby cure again. So, so I'm not sure I share the court's view on this, and I think that this case would be ripe for a, an appeal to the federal court, but I certainly wouldn't do so on the strength of, of the arguments advanced at the district court level. So, so that's the case. That's Amazon uh, in uh, Kent, Washington, and the, the question of whether or not you have to abate while the contest for the alleged violations is pending. What, Taylor, do you think we, we ought to advise the OSHA 3030 community to do in light of this decision? Yeah, sure. So, so the first is that employers should um, note the contest of the alleged violation, you know, so the, the thing that Amazon did not do in this case, um, but also, all, yeah, exactly, exactly. Thank you. Uh, but also all the other elements of the citation. Um, you know, Manish, you and I are current, whenever we're involved in a case like this, we're constantly encouraging the client to post everything <laughs> that they receive you know, from from the state OSHA, alleged violation description, um, any abatement, any penalty amount, essentially everything, you know, should get posted, I think, as a matter of, of good practice. Well, I think that's right, Taylor. When the citation uh, comes in, it should be posted. If you note your appeal or notice of contest, that should be posted right there as well uh, in the location of the violation or place where all employees can see it. And uh, then then when new matters come in, new filings come in, they should be posted. I think that's right, Taylor. And, but then there's a separate question. Employers often file their own notices of contest, and they they simply they think it's a simple affair many times, and say we we contest this uh, this citation. But I think that there's multiple elements, and this case teaches us that. And it's on the face of the federal district court's opinion that you need to contest not only the alleged violation, but the alleged violation description, the characterization of which standard mm-hmm. is allegedly violated. You should contest the proposed abatement, the proposed abatement period, many times it's an irrationally short period for abatement, and you should contest the penalty amount. Uh, Those are at a minimum the specific elements that should be contested in a notice of contest. And a lot of times I see notices of contest and they're not uh, exhaustive in identifying the elements that are being contested. And it's theoretically possible that that an employer could sit on its rights by accident by not being clear in its notice. Taylor, any others? yeah, so another one that that jumped out is is you know certainly state plan states uh, as we see in this case can have different methods of addressing a notice of contest uh, procedures and so so we see that here in, in Washington State and again as we discussed you know Washington calls this an appeal you know you could see it called something else in different states and just watch out for that you know sort of shifting of burden and these different methods of, of going through the contest pr- procedure properly. Yeah, Taylor, between you, me, and the other OSHA attorneys here at Keller and Hackman, we've represented employers and contests in probably every state in the union, yep. federal OSHA plans, as well as state plan states. And we see this come up. Uh, there's several states that have very different methods for addressing notices of contest and, and several states that like Washington would call it an appeal rather than a notice of contest, mm-hmm. uh, forcing the burden on the employer to uh, prosecute its notice of contest through to getting it docketed with an administrative law judge. Finally, I think that the last thing I'd say that comes out of this case as a lesson learned is to make sure immediately to identify any unions on site or who the employee representative is on site and make sure they're also included. So in addition to posting that every document that you identified, Taylor, like the citation and the appeal should also be 
sent to the union representative or other employee representative throughout that whole contest process. Well, Taylor, that's this month's OSHA 3030. I think uh, I think it's a really important case. Yeah. Uh, and I think we will see, uh, hopefully we'll see an appeal in that case, but I think we'll see this issue come up again someday in the future. So I think it's useful information for the members of the OSHA 3030 community. As I said before, the entire library of prior episodes are available on our website, khlaw.com. This episode will be posted as a podcast. So check it out on your favorite podcast channel, forward it on so that people know about the podcast within your organization and other in-house counsel responsible for OSHA law and safety and health professionals. Let them know about the podcast and about the live webinar. Uh, and, and please forward it on to three other people. I know some of you have been doing that. Thank you. Please keep doing it because there are many other participants who have not. And I ask you to consider doing so as soon as we all conclude this meeting to think about three people you'd like to, to forward this to to make sure they they get the benefit of the information being shared here freely. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is the next episode is going to be at 1 p.m. on May 17th. We look forward to seeing you then. And we have sister episodes. The Tosca 3030 is 1 p.m. on Wednesday, May 10th. Reach 3030, June 21. So please check those programs out as well. Taylor Johnson, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank everyone at Keller and Heckman who makes this program possible every month. And I'd like to thank all of you, attendees and participants, uh, members of our OSHA 3030 community, friends and clients of Keller and Heckman. If in between now and when we see you again next month, you have any questions about this matter or any other OSHA law questions, again, feel free to reach out to us. We love chatting about this stuff. Always happy to catch up with you as well. So look forward to that. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. Until then, stay safe. Mm-hmm.